So tonight I'd like to talk about compassion. It's always a suitable topic at times in the midst of these difficult retreats. And compassion is one of the four Brahma-viharas the Buddha talks about in the text, the four divine abodes, Brahma-vihara, the home of Brahma. And the four divine abodes are metta, or loving-kindness, compassion, or in Pali it's karuna, empathetic joy, or mudita, and equanimity, upeka in Pali. So I wanted to talk about one of these, compassion. We did some loving-kindness, the metta. Now to go a little deeper into what it is that we mean when we talk about compassion. Here on the retreat, we call these teachings that happen here wisdom teachings. We're looking deeply into the nature of our existence and what it means to be in this human condition and to know a sense of freedom and aliveness within this human condition. Although if the wisdom is not balanced with compassion, it can get sometimes too dry or one can get disconnected from things. And if compassion is not balanced by wisdom, there can enter in too much selfishness or righteousness around what one knows or thinks to be true. It's said that wisdom and compassion are like two wings of a bird. You need the two together to make a whole and complete understanding. So what is compassion? What do we mean when referring to this uh, quality of the heart, this divine abode? Compassion has the quality of love in it, has the quality of metta in it. But as metta sees the good in ourselves and others and wishes for our own and others' happiness, metta is directed towards the wish for one's happiness. But compassion is this love or this metta that sees the suffering in beings. It turns this love towards the suffering of beings and wishes for their release from it. So the base of compassion is the metta, is this deep connection, this deep care for all beings, for all things. But it is turned towards the painful aspect. The Buddha calls it the quivering or the tenderness in the heart, that quivering in the heart. When this loving attention is turned towards the painful element in ourselves or others, this is the possibility to awaken compassion towards what we see, what we see in ourselves and what we see around us. We may have a time where we remember some deeds that were unkind or hurtful, or we may remember a time or be involved in a time when we're giving ourselves a hard time. We may see someone else act in a way that we don't like, we get angry. 
But we see if we can turn towards that displeasure. We see if we can turn the attention towards it. And rather than lashing out at ourselves or others for what we see, there's the possibility of a tender response, the possibility of a caring response, a movement of the heart that is not angry, that is not fearful. But we find it hard to respond in this way. It doesn't often seem to be a natural way of responding to situations that we see. There is a strong conditioned force, a strong conditioned habit that moves with fear and hatred and anger at times. We haven't actually learned very well or had influences in our life that have pointed to this more tender way of being. It isn't something that many of us have had experiences with. And the whole culture really does support a way of pushing away or hiding the painful or the suffering aspects so we can't see them, we're not impacted, we're not influenced by these in our lives. We really do put those things that are difficult behind doors. We hide them away. We hide away the poor people that we don't want to see into ghettos. We put the sick people away in the hospitals or the old people away in the old age homes or nursing homes. The people who are mentally handicapped, we put them in mental institutions, we don't want to see them. Or people who are dead in funeral homes and funeral parlors. All these things are hidden from our view. It's not something that we have had an opportunity to directly experience, to directly face in our lives. Birth and sickness, old age and death are hidden away from us. I mean, myself, I have never witnessed a birth, not even an animal giving birth. It's something I've never seen. Something seems unnatural about that. And I've never witnessed a death. I've never been with a dying person. Something seems off about that. When I was a child, one of my memories is being with uh, when my, one of my aunts was dying and she was put into a hospital, of course. And I wanted to go visit her, but they wouldn't let me go in because children weren't allowed to go in the hospitals weren't allowed to, I mean, I don't know why, but children weren't allowed. I don't know what the policy is now, but it wasn't something that, that uh, was understood as being helpful for the child. It was hidden, to be hidden. I'll never forget that. It's a deep memory for myself. The painful gets fragmented. It gets separated. And the motivation for the, separa- the separation arises out of our psyche, that need to hide away what we think is bad, what we think is wrong or ugly, so we don't have to feel the pain or the unpleasantness of our experience. We want to shut it out, cut it off. When I was growing up, it was not okay for me to express any kind of negativity, to express my anger or my sorrow or my unhappiness. I had to always go in my room and hide it away. My mother didn't want anything to do with it. 
my confusion and all that was happening, which just made me more angry. And as an adolescent, I became buried in depression and confusion. And I really thought I was bad. I was bad for having all of these feelings. It was just, it was fragmented. It was separated out. It wasn't included as something that could be looked at, that could be brought into our awareness, into our exploration. And it seems this is the primal split. This is what happens. We split off from our wholeness. We split off from ourselves into parts, into fragments, the fragments of uh, those that are good and those that are bad or evil, those that are right and those that are wrong, those that are okay and those that are not okay. And there's just a split and this attempt to resolve, to try to come back into wholeness without really looking at what the issue is. But the more we get fixated on what is good, the more we fixate what is bad, the more we split. Our fixation on the good keeps showing us what's bad because the good can't stand by itself. It has to have its opposite. It has to have a whole set of conditions which show us the that which isn't bad or which isn't good. And we get caught in these extremes trying to resolve this. What's good? What's bad? You know, trying to find some way to come back into wholeness. Now I'm doing good. Now I'm doing bad. This is good. This is bad. This is right. This is wrong. And we just swing between these extremes, and there's guilt and shame and sense of betrayal, anger, hatred that arises towards ourselves because of this fixation because of our fixation around this good and the fixation around the bad, which just keeps supporting each other. And we don't see how we just keep reinforcing this split and this fragmentation. When we begin to free ourselves from our attachment to these concepts, the concepts themselves, then we're starting to heal this fragmentation. One of the ways to help us let go of this attachment to these concepts, I think, is to be clearer about what the Buddha is actually teaching us. Because the Buddha isn't teaching us to be good. The teachings aren't about how to be good, how to be a good person or a better person. That's not what this training is about. That's not what this path is about. But what the Buddha was interested in was suffering. The Buddha said, I teach one thing, and I teach one thing only, and that is suffering and the end of suffering. He's not interested in what is good and what is bad, but we're interested in what gives rise to the problems of life, what gives rise to these, the difficulty and the pain in our lives. This is the question. It's when I started really understanding what these teachings were pointing to, it started clarifying, giving these teachings a focus, a direction, an aim. It helped to sort out some of the confusion I had about what I was really attempting to do, which wasn't really to become a better person or a good person according to a whole new set of ideals or spiritual ideals, but to really come to an end of this whole split What gives rise to suffering? 
What happens if I tell a lie? It's not that lying is bad and not lying is good. What happens if I tell a lie? If I tell a lie to one person and then that person tells it to somebody else, then I have to, and then that person comes back to me, then I have to kind of cover up for what I said to that person, and then that person tells somebody else, and I have to keep covering up, and sooner or later I just find myself completely out of touch with what's real, what's, what, what is reality, and a great deal of confusion. It, it's, it's pain. And what if I drink too much wine? <laughs> it's not bad to drink too much or to... Uh, uh, to get drunk, <laughs> it causes a lot of suffering and confusion and difficulty in our life. It leads to pain. And what if I choose to spend time with somebody who's sick, somebody who's not well? It's not good to do that, but it gives rise to that feeling of relieving someone's pain gives rise to the, to the um, movement of that compassionate heart, opening the heart, connection, touching one another. So it's a shift from the focus on what is good or bad or right or wrong to what leads to more pain in our lives and what leads to more happiness and what leads to more peace. And when we get the question <laughs> located more correctly, more appropriately, and it helps us, le- it helps us uh, be relieved of a lot of the mental anguish that we're feeling and helps to point us more clearly to what this is about, where we're going, which is to end the suffering, end the problem of life. But we're brought up in a world where suffering is to be avoided, it's said to, it's unbearable. Suffering is bad. It's wrong. It shouldn't happen. You know? And then this keeps splitting in our psyche, and it gets reinforced that having suffering is bad. Somehow we feel responsible for it. We take it personally. But the Buddha pointed out one of the first truths of the Buddha after his enlightenment is that there is pain in this life. The first noble truth, there is pain in this life. And I remember when I first really heard that and took it in, I did feel a sense of relief that somehow the pain was was not so personal. Because painful things happened wasn't necessarily my fault. I didn't have to take all the responsibility for it on my shoulders, but there is pain in this life. It's a reality, it's a truth. And that is an offering that the Buddha gave us in his great enlightenment. For myself, I saw how strong this split was in myself of good and bad and uh, uh, being able to look at suffering or not being able to look at suffering. I saw this very strongly the first time I went to India, about 10 or 11 years ago. And I didn't know really how strong this was in myself till I went. And I was very reluctant, very apprehensive, of, apprehensive about going, and once I got there I understood why. <laughs> 
An interesting thing happened. I went there to teach uh, a retreat, uh, uh, the Bodhgaya retreat that happens there in Bodhgaya, India, every January, which I hope some of you uh, can come to and, and, and join us there. Christopher and I and some other teachers are there every year. And I had been just teaching uh, for a few years, and he, Christopher, wanted me to uh, take questions and answers in the hall of 150 people. And I had been in India about one week. And one of the questions that was asked was, how do I deal with the suffering I see around me in India? Well. I'm not sure what I said, <laughs> because the truth was I had no idea. I had no idea because I was in a state of shock. I had, I had no idea how to deal with all the pain that I saw around me. Because in India, it's all out. It's very different than our culture, where everything's hidden away that is unpleasant. Well, at least it used to be. They're not, our culture isn't doing such a good job anymore. <laughs> Things are starting to show up. But in India, it's all out there for all of us to see. And we come face to face with this unsatisfactory aspect. Everything, <laughs> everything seems out of control. The conditions of the people are dire for the most part. There's so much poverty, so much disease, the pollution, the lack of sanitary facilities the way the banks operate, the trains operate, you know, thinking that you're going to catch a train and you're you know, lucky if it comes within the first 8 to 24 hours. You know, everything's seemingly out of our control. And birth, sickness, old age, and death seem to be right out there. There's no hiding away. One of the big jokes is funeral parlors in India. You know, it doesn't happen. And being there forced me to come close to the truth of this pain and suffering. And I was not prepared. And most of the people who are there are not prepared. Because we have very few, most of the travelers, most of the Westerners who are there are not prepared. Because we have very few strategies to deal with this level of suffering. But for many of us, we can't ward it off. We're thrown into helplessness or despair or anger or we do try to find ways to close off in distraction, drugs or other things, and, or just run away. Compassion hardly seems like an option at times. Yet it seems this is our challenge. If we can allow ourselves to come close to the suffering with an open heart, without reacting, without recoiling, this is the cause for compassion to arise. If we stay closed off, we close off the wellspring of our compassion. On one three-month retreat I was on a few years ago, Joseph Goldstein, one of the teachers, one of my teachers, asked the question, if suffering is the cause for compassion to arise, why isn't the world a more compassionate place? Very good question. Because as much as we try, we really can't hide from it. But we do try. 
And the answer that he gave to that was that we do stay closed off. We find as many strategies as we can to avoid facing pain, facing the true suffering in our life. And we can see this in, in ways right here in our own experience. When we don't like something, something's unpleasant, whether it's a physical pain in our body or some negativity that arises in the mind or some situation that we don't like, we can see how we react. We can see how we want to push it away. We tighten, contract, close off, or get angry, or get mad, or judgmental, condemn, criticize, get frustrated, go into self-pity. So many things happen when situations happen that we don't like. And we see how hard we can be on ourselves and on others. For the most part, one, it's not easy to acknowledge, to really admit what's happening, and, it's for two, and two, it's not easy to open to it, to allow it. I talked with somebody in group today about this, and it was just, it was, it was just as I would imagine somebody would respond. It's open to it. Why would I want to do that? It's awful. I don't like it. I don't want it to be there. I want it to go away. No. It's like we'll do whatever we can to make it go away, to work with our strategies. The idea of actually opening to pain, whether it's a subtle physical pain or mental pain or situation, to move towards it, to move towards it with softness or tenderness seems like a huge leap. Rather, it seems like we are caught by two limited options, which are usually ruled by fear. We either flee or we fight. And depending on who you are, one is usually stronger than the other. For those of us who flee, it's a running away, it's a withdrawal. We find some excuse to get out, to get away. You know, whether it's physically, we want to physically remove ourselves, move, remove the body, take the body, move it out of the room. <laughs> Just let's get out of this situation. <laughs> Just pull away. No, this does not feel safe. I don't like being here. Or we may mentally remove ourselves, and this we can see again and again and again. We go back into imagined past, into our memories, and we go forward into an imagined future, into our plans and our fantasies. And these can seem like safe places to go. As Stephen Batchelor said, they're like mind pockets which seem safe in an unmanageable world. You know? But are they really safe? You know, we may go into a fantasy, it feels really lovely and safe, and all of a sudden something starts to turn, <laughs> something starts to shift, and we find ourselves someplace we didn't actually want to be at all, and then we don't know the way out. We will ignore and pretend things aren't there. We so easily fall into denial and suppression. One of my favorite stories that um, you've probably heard from Sharon Salzberg's loving-kindness book. One friend tells a story. 
His father was a young child driving with his own father in a car on December 7, 1941. A sudden announcement came over the car radio. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor. Immediately, my friend's grandfather leaned over and said urgently to his son, don't tell your mother. <laughs> when hearing this, I thought, right, maybe he hoped she wouldn't notice any of World War II. <laughs> but isn't that the kind of response? Like, don't tell. Let's, let's pretend it's not happening. No. And maybe we won't feel the effects of it. Or we'll numb ourselves. We'll find ways to numb ourselves with different addictions, with drugs or alcohol or other addictions of overeating or religious fanaticism or gambling or our, our, our work or something that we can find to distract ourselves, to flee from what may have to really be looked at in ourselves. But when we withdraw out of fear, this, with, this withdrawal reinforces more fear. It reinforces more agitation and closing off. It doesn't reinforce an open heart. And then some of us close off by attacking, moving forward rather than withdrawing, moving into the situation, moving towards and against the object or the person or the situation. And this can show up through verbal abuse, either you know, abusing another person with uh, negativity and anger and judgment and criticism, or we can do it to ourselves. We can verbally abuse ourselves through the way we talk, about talk to ourselves. Or it can happen through physical abuse, where we actually strike out, we want to hurt, want to get revenge, and this can lead to cruelty and deep pain. And when we attack out of fear, this just reinforces more fear, more hatred, more anger, and more confusion. It doesn't allow for the heart to open. These strategies haven't worked. These strategies that we know so well, they don't work. All they do is reinforce more pain. And they keep us cut off from ourselves. They keep us cut off from others. They do not allow for the awakening of compassion. They keep us from turning towards suffering, turning towards suffering which is the fertilizer for the flowering of our compassionate heart. Moving towards. How can we work with this reactivity? How can we work with this when we see this movement in ourselves, this withdrawing, running away, or attacking, striking, moving forward. Right in the moment of feeling some unpleasant response, right in that moment of feeling that unpleasantness towards something, notice what the mind has made contact with when it pulled away. Notice what just happened. Was it a sound? Maybe somebody coughing nearby, some unpleasant kind of sound. Seeing a form, maybe seeing a person who we have some unpleasant association with. 
maybe making contact with a thought, self-judgment, or a memory, or some scary images or storyline in the mind. What is it? Notice what we've just made contact with. And then see if we can acknowledge the arising and the presence of that aversion, of that tightening, of that contraction. And see if we can notice that it's inside us. That contraction, that that tightening is within ourselves. It's not out there. Because what happens is we so often just keep the attention projected out as that person or that situation or that be that uh, object as the problem. And we're not looking within. We don't realize that the tension, the aversion, the anger has just arisen within us. So we notice that, see if we can notice that, acknowledge it, and turn the attention back to ourselves and soften that contraction. See if we can soften that contraction. In this softening, we soften the separation. We start to dissolve that sense of separation between ourselves and other, me and it, because the contraction, the closing off, isn't there, isn't happening. You take, for example, if you're sitting here in the hall and somebody is coughing. And in Bodh Gaya, we really have this happen. A lot of people have chest, uh, in, uh, chest colds, and there's so much coughing that happens. person near you is coughing, and, and you have this sense that if this, only this person would stop coughing, then I could get somewhere in my meditation. And that's usually, it's, you know, if only that would stop, then I could feel happier, I could feel better. I could feel more connected. (laughs) If only that would change. And then the blame and the projection, it all goes out to that other person. So that person's coughing, seeing if we can come back to feel that contraction that's arising within us, bringing that attention back to ourself, dissolving that sense of me and other, me and it. And notice how the heart feels when we do that. Even in the face of pain, a kind of contentment can come. Even in the midst of a situation that we don't like or is unpleasant, we can feel that softening, that contentment within ourselves. By turning our attention directly to the aversion, to that place of contraction in ourselves, This is the possibility for compassion to arise. When our heart is open, there is no aversion. Rather, there is a heartfelt wish to alleviate the pain. That aversion is gone. We just naturally want to alleviate the painful situation, whether it's in ourselves or another. One of the great teachers, Tuku Ugin, said, True compassion is like the summer's warmth which melts the ice. True compassion is like that, the sun that melts the ice. We can move toward what's happening, right into what's happening, without fear, without anger, or even sorrow. When we respond to situations compassionately, 
We know our happiness, our equanimity of mind, is not dependent on whether the situation actually changes or not. That's truly what this is about. There's a knowing, there's a deep understanding that our, our, our peace, our inner balance, our, our uh, openness is not dependent on the conditions around us. It's not dependent on whether somebody is coughing or whether there's noise outside or whether um, there is uh, a war in another country. But we can still feel that place of balance and, and, and wholeness in ourselves. We can still act with steadiness and clarity and wisdom because we have that strength. We're not thrown off balance with the aversion, with the anger, with the fear. Because when that's present, it blocks the flow of an open heart. It blocks the flow of clear wisdom. We see this difficulty with social activists. They may think at times they're acting out of compassion, but it's actually righteous anger which is getting disguised as compassion. And the example that came up for me was when I heard uh, last year that there were um, anti-abortionists who were blowing up the offices of doctors who were performing abortions. And this was probably done out of some sense of feeling compassion for the feces, the, 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 the feces. <laughs> you can see what... <laughs> <laughs> says something about what this is uh <laughs> Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> reminds, me of, reminds me of an outtake in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how am I going to get back to this? <laughs> oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> this was serious. <laughs> Yes, the anti-abortionists, yes. So, compassion for the fetus. <laughs> but compassionate action does not reinforce more fear. Compassionate action does not reinforce more hatred or anger in our world. 
true compassionate action leads to more peace and to harmony. It leads to bringing about the end of pain and suffering. This is the way to know, to evaluate whether something is moving from that place of compassion. Is there anger in it? Is there fear in it? Is there hatred in it? Because if it is, it's not compassion. And compassion is not debilitating. Being compassionate and moving in a compassionate way in our lives is not something that we get burned out by. It's not debilitating. It's uplifting. It's energizing. It's only anger. It's only fear. It's only hatred that is debilitating in ourselves. Not compassion. Not an open heart. I was very inspired by um, this woman who works with Thich Nhat Hanh. Her name used to be Sister Fong, but I think she's changed her name, and I don't know what it is now. But she's written a book about her experiences of working in Vietnam and then her exile in France. And one of the things she talked about was when she was in France and she would receive the letters and the information about what was happening in Vietnam after the war. And she would feel this anger arise in her and this frustration, I mean, tremendous, I mean, just to think about the predicament she was in, feeling this anger. And she said she couldn't respond. She knew that she wasn't able to take any action until she was able to be free of the anger. And so she would go out and she would do walking meditation. And she would walk back and forth and back and forth until she knew her heart was in a clear place, her mind was in a clear place before she could write the letter, before she could respond in any kind of a clear way. Because if we're not doing that, all we're doing is reinforcing more separation, reinforcing more conflict, reinforcing more suffering in our life. It's something I think we have to be extremely clear about in ourselves and in our actions and how we're moving in our relationships and situations and in the world. Jack Hornfield says, The power of the compassionate heart to transform is extraordinary. It transforms resentment into forgiveness, hatred into friendliness, and fear into respect. But why is it so difficult? Why does it seem so difficult for us to open, to move in a way that is more compassionate, that is more friendly, that is more kind? There's many different ways we could look at that, the answer to that question. But one of the reasons is because we hold the assumption that our happiness is very fragile, that somehow our happiness can break like a china cup. And if I open to the unpleasant experience, if I open to the pain of situations, it will take my happiness away. Opening to the unpleasant or opening to the painful aspect is seen as a threat to our happiness. And so somehow we have to keep it away so that we can have this sense, which is a deception, that we're happy. 
Yet it's only a threat if we think happiness has to do with a pleasant experience or the pleasant sensation, as we were talking about the other night. And this is what most people think. But as we said, happiness does not simply come from the pleasant feeling, but it arises when we can remain steady in the face of all these different changing experiences, whatever they are. When we can intimately connect with each experience, however it presents itself, without judgment, without aversion, without grasping, when we can honor all aspects of this existence in all of its forms, in all of its manifestation, the mind and heart comes to a deep peace and contentment. Then we can respond to a situation with wisdom and a clear mind. We can respond with a compassionate heart. And as long as this is not understood, we will close off to that which we think is threatening which we think is threatening to our happiness. And we'll keep chasing after experiences that we think are going to give us that security, that peace. There's another reason why it's difficult to open, to be compassionate to ourselves and to others. And this was exemplified in a group when I was teaching a retreat last week in in England, actually just last week. And one woman in a group was reflecting on how unkind people had been to her and her own unkind responses and feeling the pain of that. And she was really deeply wanting to consider why is it so difficult to be kind? And another woman in the group responded, She said, this is why it's difficult for me to be kind. She said, being kind is threatening. It means I have to let go of how I know myself to be, and that's scary. The way I know myself has a familiarity. It has a certainty. It has a security, even if it's painful. There's something safe about habitual responses. Hmm? Very interesting. There's something safe about habitual responses. She said, letting go of that takes me into the unfamiliar where I can't control. It takes me into the unknown where I don't know what's going to happen. So I want to keep everything safe, even if it's painful. We hear this. It's not so uncommon. I heard it yesterday in a group. Somebody else said the same thing. I want to stay where it's familiar. I don't want to look at things in a different way. It's going to shake up my world too much. I don't know if I can handle it. I'm going to lose control. It takes tremendous courage to let go. We think if I open, it's going to be annihilating something about it's going to be annihilating. And in some ways, maybe it is. Maybe it is going to annihilate that place in ourselves where we want everything to stay so intact, so solid, so
so secure. But we do need to open just a little at a time. We need to start right where we are. We don't have to leap in to something that's too much for us. When I was in India, I knew I had to go slow. I knew it would be too overwhelming for me, and I had to gently go into that process. It was too much, it was too strong, and I needed to turn the compassionate response back towards myself. Tenderness and kindness towards myself in the face of what I was seeing. But each moment we can allow a little of the pain in. This allowing unlocks our fear and loosens the tendency to close off our hearts. Just one moment of allowing something in, in a new way, in an unfamiliar way, can unlock that fear, loosen that fear in our hearts. We relax. We relax that tension. We soften. And then we can allow a little bit more. And we go at our own pace. This is the compassionate response. As we open and let go, we come back to ourself in love. You come back to yourself in love in that loving response. And we start to recognize that we're not alone. It's not just my pain. It's not just our own pain. But it's a shared pain. We find out that we're actually not so different. But we are sharing together in some great mystery that we really can't understand. Conditions seem to come together and then they dissolve, like some magical display that really seems out of our control. And when we recognize that we're not alone in this, our sense of connection with things starts to grow. And as our sense of connection starts to grow, our care and our respect for all things starts to grow. And then the sense of ourself and other becomes a little less solid, becomes a little less likely to believe in. And this desire to relieve suffering is just a natural response. It becomes effortless. It becomes choiceless. It becomes a natural expression of our freedom. I'll close with this, these lines from Shantideva, an 8th eighth century Buddhist philosopher, I think really capsulizes the essence of this teaching. He says that even when I do things for the sake of others, no sense of amazement or conceit arises. It is just like feeding myself. I hope for nothing in return. So beautiful. It is just like feeding myself. I hope for nothing in return. 
because just that act is enough. It's complete in itself for all beings in that moment. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Even when I do things for the sake of others, no sense of amazement or conceit arises. It is just like feeding myself. I hope for nothing in return. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with compassion. May all beings live with an open heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.